We aspire to the idea that everything that goes on here at All Saints is about nothing less than salvation. Everything that happens here is about salvation. If we are not about proclaiming and responding and receiving and growing in God's saving grace, then we might as well not bother. There's community available lots of other places. Great music can be found all over town. Not necessarily better, but great music all over town. There's plenty of avenues for service and childcare and supporting worthy causes outside of God's church. We can take an endless variety of classes everywhere from our universities to our gyms. If what we do here, and I mean anything and everything that we do here, is not about salvation, then we are a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. But salvation is an elusive word itself. Hard to pin down. It's a bit like grace. Points towards everything that we seek and hope for and taste and know and move as we are drawn into and granted right relationship with God, with one another, and with the whole of creation. That's what salvation is. Our prayer book and our Bible tends to prefer a variety of images to help us imagine our way into this extraordinary reality, into grasping the reality, the magnitude of the reality that God desires nothing but the best for us in right relation with God, with one another, and with the whole of creation our whole lives long. And so salvation is at once the healing of the sick, of a sick person. It's redemption of something tarnished and left to languish at a pawnbroker, Salvation is finding ourselves in prison with the echo of the door clanging shut behind us only to discover another door opening up before us and knowing freedom as we walk through into the unknown. Sometimes salvation is like being in a small boat on a stormy sea and spotting land through the spray and finding the boat crashing into pieces as we are essentially thrown up onto the beach. And at other times, salvation is something we know more like a a massive ship, an aircraft carrier, or something in heavy seas, that, that something that takes a good while and requires all systems working together in order to turn and find the right heading. Salvation is as small but as essential as not taking that next drink or succumbing to your particular compulsion. And it's as large as knowing yourself love, forgiven and loved with a measure of freedom you never thought possible. The fullness of salvation, like love itself, will be different to you in your 60s than it was in your 20s, but no less urgent. And our lens and story that shapes our understanding of salvation is the story of Jesus told and proclaimed in the community of Jesus, where faith is practiced that we may know the fullness of God's grace. So why is it? Why is it that when our eyes begin to open and our hearts begin to be warmed and we accept baptism and we know that we don't have to be stuck in our current circumstance and love begins to shine through our carefully constructed defenses against trusting anyone really, but especially against trusting God, why is it that we keep falling back into a world of blame and scarcity and fear and violence? Why? The church has asked this question from near the beginning, defined it as the problem of post-baptismal sin. Why is it that after the renouncing the devil and accepting Jesus 
as the way of life after moving from death to life? Why do we continue to fall into sin? Every one of us can know something about how we tend to get stuck in a world of death, which is the reality of sin in our lives, if we consider what Jesus has to say in our story from Luke today. It's a strange story. It's hard to get at. But let me try. He takes on those who would seek to find some salvific meaning in violent disasters. It's kind of thinking that we all do from time to time. Was it God's will that so many should fight, die in the fight against Germany or Japan, or was it only God's will that the aggressors should suffer? Then what of the allies? Do you think that because some Galileans suffered when their blood was mingled with sacrifices, they were worse sinners than other Galileans? Whose fault was Katrina, or a tsunami, or an earthquake, a plague, or a famine? Was it governments, greed, the stupidity of people who live in vulnerable places, all those of us who drive cars, climate change, bad engineering of buildings, levees, bridges, nuclear power plants, or anything else in all creation? Do you think that the 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? Can you hear your own questions in here? At some point, we all consider the possibility that violence has meaning, that these disasters can be redemptive or good. We're like, we're like Job's friends who keep trying to find some purpose or order in the dreadful events that beset him, some way perhaps of being less anxious ourselves and more secure in a terrifying world. This terror of all the bad things that can happen is the root of self-righteousness that habit of trying to make sure that we're doing everything we can to assure that we will not be victimized, that we will be safe, that these disasters won't happen to us because we're good people and we don't deserve it. We're not only like Job's friends, we're like the rich young man who asked Jesus, what must I do to be saved? So let's set aside looking for violence to be meaningful or redemptive. Jesus doesn't answer these questions. Jesus says, look to yourself, repent, or you are going to suffer. But what's the alternative? The alternative is to say that all such attempts to allay our fears and create meaning through connecting disaster with morality is wrong and stupid. And so we excoriate those who claim that AIDS is God's punishment for sin or that Katrina was bound to happen in a notoriously dissolute and wanton city. We say that's rubbish, but we're close to saying that the only conclusion we can draw, therefore, is there is no meaning. There is no God. Or that God has nothing to do with disaster. Or that disaster is just the price of freedom. We're close to a complete denial of meaning or purpose to be wrested from such events, and so very close to saying that death, violence, scarcity, greed, these are the last words in life, which is, after all, merely nasty, brutish, and short. If you've ever wondered if your atheist friends might not be right, you're not alone. And in those thoughts, we are in the thrall of death.
It seems that if we seek meaning or if we deny meaning, either way, death holds sway. Who among us has not seen ourselves in either or both of these tendencies in the face of disaster or loss or disappointment? These are our responses in the thrall of death, and none of us is immune. Jesus won't bless that. Jesus won't bless that thinking. Jesus won't bless such deathliness in any way. He says, rather than looking to find meaning outside ourselves in these events, we will find salvation looking at ourselves in response to these disasters and root out or challenge our tendency to accept violence as a way of life. He just says, unless you repent, unless you turn your life around, unless you see the world differently, unless you start reimagining what is going on, you will be you will be destroyed. He says we should turn toward life, allow our imaginative worlds to be shaped by new and life-giving possibilities. What is that about? Well, he tells a strange story to tell us what it's about. It goes on to this business of the fig tree. And here I'm indebted to our friend and occasional visitor, theologian James Allison. Jesus insists that we reorient ourselves from the way of death and imagine ourselves in a new inner world of life. So when we first hear this parable, we start hearing about a man who owns a vineyard planting a fig tree. And we immediately assume that we're hearing about God. But then the man does something shocking and greedy and actually against the law the man does something wrong. In Leviticus 25, no harvest or fruit may be taken in the first three seasons, and even in the fourth year, only the first fruits may be taken and no profits. And so the man who planted the tree in Jesus' story is a lawbreaker. He's all about scarcity and punishment and utilitarianism. Why should this tree be wasting the soil, he asks. Surely this master is a God of our own creation, a God not worthy of worship, the kind of God who would demand bloodshed and recompense for sin and who would bless our efforts to wrest meaning from disasters. Katrina, Columbine, Newtown, the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good white guy with a gun. This cannot be right. This master cannot be God. Life is not to be found in this deadly, imaginative construct. No, Jesus is pushing us to find God somewhere else. Could it be that God is the gardener in this story? Could God be the one who begs the powerful one not to foreclose, but to allow the possibility of righteousness or right relationship of the kind that is reflected in the law? Could God not be the one who is not afraid of sinking his hands in the dirt? Not ashamed to work with the dung and perhaps nudge the tree into producing fruit in the fourth year? Is Jesus not saying that the way of blame and foreclosure and violence and greed lead to death, but that we can know a reasonable and holy hope of another way if we will allow our imaginations to conceive a path of abundance, abundance in us, as though we are the trees being cared for and nudged into fruitfulness 
by God. Jesus' hearers would have known something else. They would have heard echoes of the fig tree in Scripture, perhaps in the prophet Joel, where the tree is barren, and then a little bit later, the tree bears abundant yield of fruit. The story of the fig tree offers us the way of salvation in which we are like the tree being worked year after year by God until we are rooted in nourishing soil and so bear fruit. And my brothers and sisters, everything we do here at All Saints that is worth doing is for the purpose of opening ourselves to God's saving grace through spiritual practice in the community of Jesus. We have a capital campaign on, but it's one example what happens when we choose to practice generosity, when we encourage the practice of attending to our place in this community of Jesus, a place which is denied no one. This campaign for all the saints draws our attention to those not yet with us and so to the practice of proclaiming good news that we have received, the practice of giving testimony so that others can be invited to share in this wonder, you get the idea. We could go on and on and on. All that we do is about salvation. And when we do it faithfully, there is the possibility, in fact, the promise of real renewal in this community. When we allow God to shape our imaginations, to turn our minds to new possibilities, then we begin to taste the first fruits of salvation, nothing less, and to see those fruits in us, in our own lives and to see those fruits in each other. Praise be to God. Let us respond to the gospel in silence and in prayer.